Good morning, everybody. Great to be with you. So you've got the sheet in front of you. Um, our frolic through Isaiah continues today. Anybody need a sheet? They should be on the table. It should have the picture of our Lord on the cross. The great Isenheim altarpiece. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Isenheim altarpiece, check it out on Google. It's one of the best uh, paintings of the crucifixion in the world. So again, our frolic continues. We've looked at Isaiah 7, the uh, prophecy of our Lord's virgin birth. We've looked at Isaiah 9, which gave us the titles of the baby Jesus, you know, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father, all that kind of stuff. Um, so today the frolic continues in one of the most famous passages in the Bible, the one chapter in particular, Isaiah 53. Now before we read this, and it's on your sheet, um, I'm going to tell a story that I've told before, but I think it bears repeating. I met a wonderful young man a few summers ago. I think, uh, Jennifer, did you go to the Manhattan Higher Things Conference? Okay, so one of the guys that helped at the Higher Things Conference in Manhattan at the University of Kansas, he was studying to be a pastor, and so he was, he was helping at the Higher Things Conference all summer. And he grew up in California. He was adopted by a family in California, and his family was Jewish. Now, the, to make the, the long story short, he would go to synagogue school, etc. but growing up as a Jew, he learned the entire Old Testament and, in fact, had almost the entire Old Testament memorized in Hebrew. But there was one chapter of the Old Testament that he was forbidden to read or study as a Jew. It's Isaiah 53. And I think if you, if you know Isaiah 53, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've never really studied Isaiah 53, today I think you'll connect the dots and you'll understand why the Jewish boy was forbidden by his rabbi to study Isaiah 53. Because it's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and in particular, his suffering on the cross. Now again, before we read the text, did Jesus die for all sin? Or let me put it to you this way. If I would ask one of you to come up here on the whiteboard and ask you to make a list of what sins Jesus didn't die for, what would you include? I'll, I'll be at the board. So give me, give me a list of sins. We'll start with number one. Number two, we'll try three sins. Give me three sins Jesus didn't die for. There's a hand up, but I know what he's going to say. Well, unbelief? Well, there is a sin of unbelief. That's correct. But did he die for that? Yeah, he did. The point I'm trying to make is sometimes, this is a trick question, sometimes people will say, well, Jesus didn't die for those who commit murder, he didn't die for those who commit adultery, and he didn't die for people, you know, like me who gossip all the time, 24-7. But the scriptures don't teach that. Jesus died for all sin, every sin. And so, did he die then for every sinner? And the answer is yes, he did. So, for example, you all know John 3, 16, God so loved who? The world. That includes everybody. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So Jesus came to take the sin of the world in his body on the cross, answer for it. The biblical terminology is this word, atone. That is to say, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice by which he sheds his blood on the cross. He is the sacrifice that atones for all sin and every sinner. Now here's why this is important, so that you can know for sure that your sin is forgiven. Because think about this for a minute. Let's do the opposite. What if Jesus didn't die for every sin and didn't die for all sinners? 
Can you ever be sure that he died for you and your sin? The answer is, no, you cannot. So this is really helpful. So I'm pushing this hard today. Isaiah 53 teaches that the sin of us all was put on Jesus Christ and he answered for it on the cross. So Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, Jesus, and what he will do. Make sense? Any questions? Yes, Judy, comment or question? Yeah, right. I think that's very difficult Yeah, you're struggling with that? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll redirect your thinking. Think of it in the best terms possible, that this man, all his life, did not live believing in Jesus Christ. And in fact, towards the very end of his life, together with the other criminal, railed against Jesus and mocked him. But then, here's the kicker. When Jesus on the cross prayed a prayer, and he's praying one of the Psalms from the Old Testament, you know, like, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But when he said this, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing, that changed that man. Then all of a sudden, he was converted to Christ. So my point is, is instead of saying, well, that's not fair, instead rejoice in the sense of, thanks be to God that this man, before he died, came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we should think about it. Thanks be to God that he did that. And then secondly, thanks be to God that he has called me to faith through the preaching of the gospel in Jesus too. It's just the timing for the thief on the cross was different than ours. That's all. The timing was different. That's all. I've been a believer all my life. Thanks be to God. I'm, I'm very thankful that I had Christian mom and dad who made sure that my spiritual life was taken care of. This thief on the cross didn't. So rejoice in it. That's, that's I want to redirect our attention that way. Okay. Anything else? Pastor, yes. Yes. Oh, the story I told? Yeah. Yes, and they were still waiting for it. So he, he knew that there was an atonement. That's correct. And so what 53 says is that this, this would be the atonement yep. for all. But it kind of follows a pattern that says, well, we, we know what atonement is, but we're not going to go down that and, and the kicker, Mike, is this, is that the boy I was talking about earlier, the, the, the rabbi didn't want him to believe that this person atoned for the sin of the world. That's the point of it all. Because the New Testament, clear, and I've got it on the sheet today, the New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53. And that's the point of not teaching Isaiah 53. Because if you know your New Testament, you'll connect the dots. <laughs> so, yeah, to, to further this point uh, a little bit more, is that Jews, they're still waiting for the Messiah. But we know that we know the Messiah has come, it's Jesus, and he did the atonement. Yes. So is that something that they like their their confirmation for lack of a better term, their confirmation is they just stay away from that altogether? 
That particular chapter. Yes, that's the huge chapter. Yes, Isaiah 53. Okay, cut and paste kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was another hand. Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. And this is this to answer. They want this kind of Messiah, political. So this is one of the reasons why Jesus was rejected by his people when he came. Because they were being oppressed by who? The Romans. And what's interesting is one of the apostles, his name is Simon. What was his occupation? Do you remember? Now, I'm not talking about Simon Peter. There was another Simon, one of the 12 apostles. Simon the what? The zealot. He was a political fanatic. He wanted to overthrow the Roman government. Now, Simon was convinced that Jesus as Messiah wasn't going to overthrow the government, but rather he was going to atone for the sin of the world by his death on the cross. But my point is, is to piggyback on what you said, is one of the reasons why Jesus was rejected in his own day by his own people is they had a different view of what Messiah would be, a political figure who would reinstitute the Davidic kingdom and the boundaries of Israel like David and Solomon. They wanted... They wanted the golden age of Israel back again. And so Jesus didn't promise that. And in fact, this is why, you remember, when Jesus asked, I hope this is helpful for you. You remember in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked the apostles, what, what's, what do the people say about me? In other words, what, what is, what's the poll numbers? Or what are they saying about me? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets. But then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Remember that? And Peter has the, has the correct answer. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, that's right. That's exactly right. And you didn't come up, paraphrasing, you didn't come up with this on your own, Peter, but my Father has revealed this to you in my ministry. But then Jesus explains what Messiah means. So Peter got it right. He's the Messiah. But what does it mean? And Jesus explained it. I will suffer. I will die and I will rise again on the third day. Now, at that point, Peter says, that can't happen to you. Why not? Because Peter, like Simon the Zealot and many other Jews, thought that he was a political figure primarily. And so if you're the Messiah, you can't what? You can never die? Messiahs don't die. And that's, of course, that's when Jesus turns on Peter, when Peter says, this is never going to happen to you. I will never allow it. You will not suffer, and you're certainly not going to die. Remember what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. So, <laughs> Satan was using an apostle to try and get Jesus from not going the way of the cross. So I hope that was somewhat helpful. Okay. And I can't help myself. I, I'm on a roll now, so I've got to keep going. So, you, you see, I said this on purpose, so that Satan used an apostle to be his mouth. Using Peter, of all people, to try and get Jesus to not go the way of the cross and the resurrection. That's satanic. Satan was at work through an apostle, which then is a foretaste of what coming in the New Testament, and we still have it to this day, and we'll still have it until the end of the world. What's that? Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2, where the man of sin or the man of lawlessness is spoken of by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, the Antichrist. Peter becomes a foretaste, if you will, of Antichrist, because Peter is where? He's a man of the, in the church. He's an apostle, and he's Antichrist at this point. Now, thanks be to God, he's repented of his false belief, 
and then finally gets rid of all this political notion stuff, and then finally believes that Jesus, yeah, you're the Messiah, but it's in the way you say, suffering, dying, and rising again. Okay. That's a side note. Then we got to look at Isaiah 53. So you get it on the sheet. Here we go. Behold my servant. That's a huge term in the Old Testament, and this morning we're going to look at how this is used in various ways. But behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Now, if you know your New Testament, you hear this numerous times. Are you thinking of two, two incidents in particular? In whom my, my chosen one, my servant, in whom my soul delights. Think of our Lord's baptism at the Jordan River. The Father speaks and says, I'm going to paraphrase, that's my boy. He's the chosen one. He's the Messiah. I sent him. That's my boy, and I love him. I delight in him. Remember that? Think of another example. That's correct. At the transfiguration, when Jesus, when his divinity is leaking out all over the place, shining through his mortal body, or his human body, that is. And the Father's voice again speaks, just like at his baptism. And I'm going to paraphrase. That's my boy. I love him. Now you listen to him. So see how this immediately, from the very beginning, is a prophecy of who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, whom the Father will send as his servant, and the Father is delighted in him. Make sense? Okay, let's keep going. I put my spirit upon him. <laughs> All right, think New Testament now. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? At his baptism, what happened? The Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. See this? Okay. He will bring forth justice to the nations. More on that in a moment. That's not political. That's not political. That's a different way of talking. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, you hear this word justice in America, and we think in a whole different direction. But biblically, justice means something else in this context. Now, since I brought this up, is God concerned about justice? Namely, should people be paid a fair, fair wage for their work? Yes. Are we to not discriminate against people? Yes, God is very concerned about justice on a human level. That's absolutely true. If you're not convinced of that, read the prophet Amos in the Old Testament and you'll find out. You know, where Amos, one of the things he points out is, you people who have a business, you, you, I'm having fun here, you people have your own business and you hire your own workers and you cheat them. Amos says God's not pleased with that and he's going to judge you for that. And basically Israel basically gave Amos the middle finger and God the middle finger on this. So my point is, is that, yes, there's a twofold aspect of justice in the Bible. One is this human level, which I just mentioned, but there's another kind of justice. It's a spiritual justice, where God does justice to our sin, death, and hell. And where does that take place? Boom, right here. Right here. Here's where God's justice is. Okay? I hope this will come clear as we study this even more. Verse 4, he will not grow faint, he will not be discouraged. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Constantly tempted to not do this. And he never grows faint. Luke puts it this way in his gospel, that Jesus resolutely, resolutely set his face 
toward Jerusalem. That means nothing was stopping him. Not Peter. Nobody. Not even Satan who tried to use Peter to stop him. (laughs) Nothing would stop him. So he will not grow faint. He won't be discouraged until he has established justice. Every time you hear this in Isaiah 53, you think this. This is it right here. And the coastlands wait for his law. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Remember last week I told you, remember the graffiti from last week? Remember I told you that? The scandal of this, there's no majesty. There's no, uh, what's the right word? Um, Kardashian form here. (laughs) You know, everybody wants to follow the Kardashians. Everybody wants to keep, you know what I'm trying to say here. These are supposedly beautiful people. Well, this ain't beautiful. That's my point. No beautiful form. Nothing to look at. So the graffiti, the Roman graffiti, is, you know, the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember? He's got the body of a man, but the head of a what? You remember that? Of a donkey, and below is an individual standing and worshiping Jesus. But the graffiti says, Alexamenos worships his God. And it was all in mockery, this graffiti that's been uncovered through archaeology. This is what people think. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. That is huge. We don't desire it. But the opposite is that God desires us. Let's keep going. Verse, uh, let's see. Yeah, 53.3 now. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. Sound like the cross to you? Better believe it. Were the apostles ashamed? Did they stay put? No, they ran when Jesus was arrested. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now here's the kicker. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. You old time Lutherans, you know a Lenten hymn? Smitten, stricken, and afflicted. afflicted. Remember that, you old timers? Is Ron here today? He's not here. You're on your own, ladies, huh? See, Ron, he'd be singing it by heart. I know that. (laughs) Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Remember that? Okay, comes from Isaiah 53. Verse 5, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions. That means sins. Crushed for our iniquities. That's sin. Upon him was the chastisement, namely the punishment, the divine punishment that brought us peace, peace with God. And with his wounds, we are healed. First Peter quotes this, saying it's a fulfillment of Jesus. His Good Friday wounds give us healing. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Now this is very important here at the end of verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him, namely this servant, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, God the Father, has laid on his son Jesus the iniquity, that means the sin, of who? Everybody. Everybody. 
So I want you to begin to understand, if you've never really thought about this, I want you to begin to understand the, just the, the magnitude of what happens on Good Friday. The sinless, holy one, Jesus Christ, who never sinned, takes the sin of the world in his body and he answers for it, for you and for your salvation. That's Christianity. Jesus takes your place. He takes your damnation. Everything that you deserve, he takes for you, for me. Sometimes this brings to my eyes that he actually did this for me, for me. Because I, I say what? I don't deserve any of this. Yeah, well, duh. Of course not. But this is salvation. Okay. Now, I want to say something else about this. I'm kind of riffing it, but I hope this is helpful. Kuhlman always riffs better than just reading. In any event, so... <clears throat> Think about this. this. This too is hard for people to understand. This too is a scandal of Christianity. Because when you think about Jesus and who he is, he's God, right? So Jesus, as well, let's put it this way. Um, divine attributes, and let's give human attributes. So think about divine attributes. Divine attributes would be what? Eternal, right? Spirit. That is to say not a bodily existence, if you will, okay? So eternal spirit, what else? Holy. You want to add any more? Yeah, that'd be holy. Yeah. Let's just stop with these three for the sake of time. So when you talk about God, you think of these attributes. He's eternal, doesn't have a body, and is totally holy. When you think of human attributes... It's just the opposite of these three. So instead of eternal, to be a human being means to be non-eternal, right? So you'd be time-bound. Which means, there's, you're gonna, what's going to happen to you eventually? You're going to die. Because that's completely opposite to this, right? What's completely opposite to this? Number two, you've got a body. What's the complete opposite of three? Sin and a sinner. Okay? So you, these are divine attributes, these are human attributes. Now here's, here's the kicker. The second person of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, <laughs> is then born of the Virgin Mary. And so the eternally begotten Son of God, the eternally begotten Son of God, at a certain point in time, according to our calendar, let's just say 1 A.D., took on a body. And uh, actually entered our time and space. Now think of number three. Jesus is holy, but on the cross, he takes the sin of the world and he answers for it. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, and if you've got your, your, your Bible app or if you've got your Bible, you can look at this as I'm talking or you can look at it later. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, that he, namely Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin. That is to say, Jesus never sinned, but by carrying the sin of the world in his body on the cross, Jesus then was counted as the sinner. That's salvation for you. So notice the swap here. Jesus on the cross, who's holy and completely innocent, takes the sin of the world in his body, is now counted as a sinner. 
And we as sinners are now counted in God's eyes as? And that's why in 2 Corinthians 5 again, he, namely Jesus, who knew no sin, was made to be sin, and now here's the swap, so that we might have the righteousness of Christ. So Christianity is a sweet swap. It's a blessed exchange. Jesus takes on flesh to do a very specific thing. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what the text says. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And when he does that, he is treated as the sinner and gets damned as one. That's why he prays what from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To be forsaken of God is to be suffering what? Hell itself. And that's why he prays that from the cross. He is actually suffering the damnation of hell that everybody deserves. And in exchange, we're treated as if we're holy. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3, 27, you, you folks who are baptized, you're now clothed with Christ. Clothed with Christ. So when God the Father looks at you, you who are baptized, God the Father doesn't see this. He sees you as holy because you're clothed with Christ and all his holiness. Now that was a big time piece of, a lot of spaghetti thrown on the wall there. Hope some of it sticks. <clears throat> so the Lord has laid on him the iniquitous life. He was oppressed, oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Let me give you an example. When the crowds are below him as he suffers on the cross and they mock him and make fun of him, does he say this? You just wait till after the resurrection and I'm coming after you. Does he talk like that? Nope. He prays, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. One time he says, I thirst. Okay. Another time he says, what? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit right before he dies. And then at the very end, it is finished. But he doesn't mock, he doesn't, he doesn't retaliate. There's no tit for tat. There's no quid pro quo when they're mocking him. Make sense? Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He simply suffered it all. He suffered all of this willingly for all of us and for our salvation. Not once did he say, I don't want any more of this, can't do it anymore, let me off. He suffers it. Eight, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Stricken. Why? Stricken for the sin of the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. How was that fulfilled? Joseph of Arimathea gave Jesus his own grave because Jesus didn't have one. Now think about this. In the human terms, when Pilate, Pontius Pilate, condemns Jesus to die on the cross, that's capital punishment. That means he is the, the most heinous of all, only the most heinous of all criminals got this. I mean, if you stole, you don't, you don't get this. When you're crucified, you are the most heinous of all criminals in the world. Okay. So Jesus technically should not have been given a what? A burial. Just his body thrown out into the trash heap. That's what you did in those days. But Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, in secret, comes and steps up to the plate. Peter didn't. John didn't. Matthew didn't. Simon the Zealot didn't. 
None of the other apostles stepped to the plate, but Joseph of Arimathea put his neck on the line when he went before Pilate and said, I want his body. Do you realize guilt by association, what that means? Oh, you're one of them? You understand where he puts his life on the line here? But he steps up to the plate. I want his body. I will give it a proper burial. Huge. Yes, please. That's right. That's right. So this young boy that I mentioned at the very beginning, I forget his name. I was going to try and locate that today so that I could tell you his name and where he's at these days. I'll try and do that for next week. But now you can understand when he finally, when he went to college and started hanging out with these Christians and he'd go to Bible class and stuff. And he told me, he said, when I read Isaiah 53, it was like a duck taken to water. All of a sudden it clicked. That's Jesus. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Who, so who was behind all of this? The crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Was it you and me? No. We want to save ourselves in our own way. So God the Father then, that's his plan. God does this. Okay. Uh, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's why he says it on the cross, it is finished. He knows the salvation job's done, and it's satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. This is huge, brothers and sisters, that phrase. My servant, he will make many to be accounted righteous. To use our language that we're familiar with today, it's because of Jesus that you're saved. That's it. The only reason you're saved is because of who? Jesus. That's the point. So if Sheila would say, you know, before God on Judgment Day, let's say Judgment Day happens tonight. Jesus returns in glory tonight. And Sheila's brought before the throne. And God the Father asks Sheila, okay, Sheila, why should I let you into heaven tonight? And she says, well, I really tried hard in my life to do good, and I really didn't hurt many people. Etc. So it just gives a whole laundry list of things she did and didn't do. And God the Father is saying, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. But then Matt steps up to the plate, same question, and Matt says, well, Jesus died for me, that's why. Come on in. Come on in. And he shall bear their, into verse 11, there's that same theme again, he will bear their sins, their iniquities. So either Jesus carries your sin and the sin of the world in his body and answers for it, or you're going to have to do it. Is that what you want? No, I don't. I'm going to say this again. This is huge from Isaiah 53. Either Jesus will carry all of your sin and answer for it, or you're going to have to. Well, good luck with that. Because it's going to end, as Kuhlman likes to say, what? It will end hellaciously if you insist on that. So if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, so when you come to church, whether it's Sunday or month after month, year after year, there's the constant preaching of who? Jesus, the Savior, for you and for your salvation. Why? Because I continue to sin every day. I'm not perfect. 
You may think I am, but go talk to Robin. She'll tell you otherwise. And talk to my children. They'll tell you otherwise. Okay? So I can't, I didn't need Jesus just once in my life. Here's my point. I didn't need Jesus for the time I got saved. And then I don't need any more Savior. Do you realize that's Christianity in general sense in America today? You only need Jesus for the day when you got converted and that's it. Then Jesus is Savior. You don't need that anymore. And then Christianity just becomes a bunch of rules to follow. That's it. You realize that? Go to the big box mega churches in Omaha and Lincoln. Seriously. And that's what Christianity is. You only need Jesus for the day when you get saved. And all the rest of your life, you don't need Jesus as Savior anymore. All you need is principles to follow. What to do, what not to do, that's it. Christianity is the constant need of Jesus as being the Savior of sinners. Not only the day I got saved, but my entire life. Because I don't know about you, I'll speak for myself. I'll look at you, we'll have fun. There's never, there's never a moment in my life when I don't sin. Either here, here, or here, or here. Even the good things that I want to do is tainted with. So I've, I, you know, Robin's not here today because she's in Springfield. She had her uncle's memorial, you know, who died a couple months ago. So I've got this. She usually puts this in the, in the offering plate. Here's my point. Here's my offering, and yet it can be tainted with sin. In what way? Now you should really like me, God. Do you see how much this is? It's better than... See how that can work? <laughs> Even the good that I want to do. Whew, I better take a strong drink. Let's finish this. The end of verse... The end, it's verse 12 now. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and now here's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, which I referenced earlier, he who knew no sin was made to be sin. He was numbered with the who? With holy people? People who don't sin? Who was Jesus counted with, according to this text? With the transgressors, sinners. So I'm going to push this point as, as much as I can today. From Isaiah 53, we learn that the Lord lays on Jesus his servant, the sin of everybody, and then as the end of it says, he's actually counted as one, numbered with the transgressors. He is counted as a sinner. Now, 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 don't misunderstand. Did Jesus ever sin? No. But here's the kicker. Bearing the sin of the world in his body, God the Father counts him as one. And that's your salvation. Because when he counts Jesus as the sinner, for Jesus' sake, for those of you who believe in Jesus, you're not counted as a sinner. Because he got counted as it, right here. He bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession. for the. He prays for the sinners. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Make sense? <laughs> now, I forgot that I put a little bit before the Isaiah 53. Go back to the first page. I also put, uh, you know, chapter 42 in just a few verses there, because that sets the table. The point, here's my point. I had Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, and then I skipped Isaiah 53. My point is this, is that from Isaiah 42 to Isaiah 53, there are four servant songs in these chapters, from 42 to 53. Four of them, where Isaiah speaks of the Lord's servant. But it climaxes, the fourth one is Isaiah 53. That's why I started in 42, just if you were wondering. 
So you can read all those chapters on your own and you will see this. There's four what we call servant songs, starting in Isaiah 42 and then climaxing with the fourth in Isaiah 53. Now, if you'll look at uh, page three, I'll do the best I can here to make sense of all of this. I hope I don't lose you. So in Isaiah 42, verse 1, which we noted, God speaks of my servant, my servant. And in the Old Testament, God chose to call all kinds of people in the Old Testament his servant, not just Jesus. That's my point. Okay, so in a general scheme of things, in the overall scheme of the Old Testament, you will discover that many people are called God's servant. And not just people, but in an entire nation, namely Israel herself. But the climax of whose servant is, is Jesus himself. So there's a, there's a general or a broad definition of servant in the Old Testament, which includes many people. Like, for example, look who I've got. Abraham, see that? Moses, and I've got the passages. I don't have to read them, but you can, you can note them with your eyes. Caleb, remember one of the spies sent to the promised land? Caleb, I can't help myself. You remember that Old Testament story? The spies were sent to the promised land to spy it out. They come back, and most of the spies say, oh my goodness, those people are way too big. There's no way that we can overtake these people. No way. And Caleb, I'll paraphrase, says, nonsense. The Lord's with us. He's promised us this land. He'll give it to us. Caleb then is called the Lord's servant. David is called God's servant. Isaiah is called God's servant. And just the prophets in general in the Old Testament are called God's servant. And then I've got another one, Eliakim. And you've probably never heard of this guy, so you can look at the footnote of who he was. He was one of King Hezekiah's government officials, and he was in charge of Hezekiah's palace. He's called God's servant. Zerubbabel, if you don't know who he is, you can look at the footnote. He led some of the captive Hebrews from the Babylonian exile back to Israel, and he was then appointed as the governor of the people when they, when they came back to Israel after the exile. He's called God's servant. And lo and behold, oh my goodness, if you didn't know this, you might be shocked, but don't, don't worry about it. Even unbelievers sometimes in the Old Testament are called God's servant. In what way? To do his will. Even if they don't know they're doing his will. <laughs> so let me give it a, here's a New Testament example. Pontius Pilate, I think, could be legitimately called God's servant. In what way? To make sure this gets carried out. I mean, we'll have to, I don't know if we'll have a chance to talk to Pontius Pilate after I die or Judgment Day. I don't know. I, I'm, the scriptures don't say if he was ever converted or not. But let's just run with it. Let's just say for the sake of example, Pontius Pilate was converted and became a Christian after our Lord's death. In this regard, he was the servant, whether he knew it or not. She had a dream, you remember. That's right. So the evangelists tell us that Pilate's wife sent Pilate an, uh, a text. <laughs> yeah, Facebook uh, notification. Have nothing to do with him because I, I suffered a lot about, about him in a dream. Okay, yeah, so that's the wife. That's all that it says. So Nebuchadnezzar is spoken of as God's servant. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar was chosen by God to do what? To put Israel into exile. Now you might say, boy, that's harsh. Well, sure it was harsh. But what was God up to by sending Israel into exile? What was he up to? It's his MO. 
It's his 24-7, 365 MO until Judgment Day. Why does God send Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem and take Israel into exile into Babylon? Why? It's what he's doing every day in your life. What is it? It's what we pray for every Sunday, that we will be repented and faithed and then led in holy living. That's what God was up to. So he used a pagan king to try and repent Israel, faith her, and lead her in holy living. Let me give you another example of how this works in the Old Testament. If you're, if you're not familiar with it, read the book of Judges in the Old Testament. You know some of the judges by name from Sunday school, like who? The guy that went like this and the whole house came crashing in? Samson was one of the judges. But the overall theme of the judges is, of course, this is before Israel has a king, right? They're not like all the other countries in the world. They don't have a king. Why not? God's their king. He'll take care of them. He'll be father to them. Remember Isaiah 9? He'll be father to them. Okay? He'll take care of them. Well, they didn't trust God to be their father and take care of them, and so God would send like the Midianites and other, other of their enemies to come and take their land, burn their crops, etc., etc. And then the people of Israel would say, oh my goodness, yeah, we've been committing idolatry all these years. We need to turn back to the Lord, ask for forgiveness, etc. And that's what God was doing. He was repenting them. And it happened time after time. And brothers and sisters, that, that's what God does in my life every day. When he sends things into my life, what's he doing? He's trying to repent me, faith me, and lead me in holy living. Make sense? That's what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he did with Cyrus. Cyrus told the Israelites, remember, after the Babylonians, the Persians came and conquered the Babylonians. And that's Cyrus. He's a Persian king. And he told the Israelites, go back. Go back to your homeland. Rebuild your temple. An unbelieving king God used as his servant to do that. Any questions about this? That's the broad sense of what servant means in the Old Testament. Now even an entire people. I'm at the bottom of page three. The title, namely, My Servant, also occurs as a corporate name for the Israelites as a whole to indicate their reason for their existence. Namely, Israel was chosen by God for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was so that what could happen? Jesus could be born of the Virgin Mary, or better yet, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin, and then doing, doing a good, good Friday and Easter Sunday. Now, the very bottom. However, no individuals or Israel as a whole can qualify as capital S servant described in Isaiah 42 all the way through Isaiah 53. And I've got those four servant song references for you at the bottom of the page. In these servant songs, now page four, it becomes abundantly clear that the prophet, namely Isaiah, namely in Isaiah 42 through 53, Isaiah is not speaking about himself as God's servant or someone else among his fellow Israelites, but rather he is proclaiming Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. Check out Acts 8. I've got it printed there for you on the sheet. Acts 8, verse 30. So Philip ran to him. This is who? Philip runs to who? The Ethiopian eunuch. And he hears this Ethiopian eunuch reading. Dun, da, da, do you see this? Who's he reading? Isaiah, the prophet, and asked. Philip asked this eunuch, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch says, this is verse 31, how can I unless someone guides me? 
and the eunuch invited Philip to come up and sit with him in his chariot. Now, the, the Ethiopian, we're not give, we're not, he is, he is the, he is the uh, treasurer to Queen Candace of Ethiopia. This guy is like General Milley, if you will, in the United States military. This guy's a huge bigwig, okay? Who's the treasurer, who's the secretary of treasury? I can't, I, who is it? I don't, that'd be his, who is it, Blinken? That's secretary of state, I believe. Is it Yellen? Well, that would be the parallel. He's a, he's a very important dude. Now, back to the point. Now, the passage of scripture that this Ethiopian eunuch, who is the treasurer of Queen Candace of Ethiopia, that he was reading is what? Check it out. It's Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or somebody else? And Philip then preaches a real short sermon. And he says, beginning from this scripture, he told him the good news of Jesus. If you're picking up what I'm throwing down, Philip and the entire New Testament believe that Isaiah 53 is fulfilled in who? Jesus. This is one example. Let's go on. So in Jesus and in him alone, God's soul delights. Baptism, remember? Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. His transfiguration in Matthew 17. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, well pleased. In other words, my soul delights in Him. Listen to Him. By contrast, see what God says about His servant Israel in Isaiah 42, 18 through 25. You can look up on that on your own. He doesn't speak well of Israel now anymore. Because the Israelites, even the best of them, were in need of forgiveness. They couldn't save themselves, much less atone for the guilt of their companions in crime throughout the world. But God, in Isaiah 42, all the way through 53, promises a sinless servant who could redeem not only disobedient servant Israel, but even all the nations, Isaiah 42.1. Now I'm going to quit on this point. Even all the nations. Okay, think New Testament. Think Sunday school opening. Make disciples of. Got it? How do you do it? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, Jesus says. And that so my point is, is the church, as the church carries out baptism in the triune name to all nations, according to Matthew 28, and teaching. The Isaiah thing is continually being fulfilled. So I hope this was somewhat helpful. I'll try and finish this up next week for you. Okay. Any questions? I'll come back. I don't know if you will, but I will. I'll come back. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art